Welcome to Computer Game Evolution, a podcast about the evolution of computer games. Episode 2.7 Offers They Couldn't Refuse. Today's episode is not going to be directly about games for the most part, they're taking a summer break. But it is going to be about some things that shaped both the game industry and the work of amateur developers. The episode will also be full of adorable rules-lawyering weasels, and a little two-faced itself. First, we'll establish how arcade machines got entangled with organized crime, and why someone would want to wave a gun at Alan Alcorn. And then we'll explore the protections game and computer companies were granted by laws, and how that resulted in the IBM PC becoming something that did not require IBM to survive. The way the arcades develop ties with the mob lies not through gambling dens. What really sent criminal hearts racing and set their eyes to gleam were the tax evasion and money laundering opportunities. To launder money, you need, first of all, some dirty money you got doing things you'd rather not admit to. As communications improved in the early 1900s, control of finance grew more efficient, it became increasingly difficult to just use dirty money, invest it or put it in a bank, because then someone might ask, hey, where did you get this money? To avoid the embarrassment and or a prolonged jail term, you had to make it appear that the money was coming from a legitimate source. Suppose you have a shop. It's not in a popular location, its goods are awful and overpriced, no one ever visits, but on paper it's a real store, it's selling things and bringing in revenue. Yeah, taxes have to be paid, but whatever it supposedly makes after that is clean. Of course, you still have to stock up on the goods it supposedly sells, and then they have to disappear somewhere, most likely in the nearest dump or at the bottom of the sea. Money laundering costs money too. But what if you had a shop that sold something you'd have to dump regularly anyway? That's way less suspicious. You could be selling, say, fresh produce. Timeline-wise, we're in the early 20th century, food doesn't keep long, as the first mass-market electric refrigerators are only starting to appear. Yeah, a grocery shop, that's what you need. But how much can you reasonably launder through a grocery store chain? If your criminal operation makes too much dirty money, yet not enough to outright buy a bank, maybe you'd expand into the ever-growing service industry. If you're going to buy and throw away a sack of potatoes anyway, where can you claim it earned more? In a fruit and veg market stall? Or in a restaurant? Or you could run a hotel? Or a barbershop? Or you could get with the times. Ford Model T is making cars affordable, and there's more of them every year, so why not invest in some kind of car repair service? Or a trucking company. Could also help you carry stuff around. The march of technology that enabled both the tightening financial control and the new opportunities for money laundering also brought about the coin-operated machines. Organized and not-so-organized criminals got interested in them early. The machines can be used both ways. If it was bringing in lots of money, you could say it wasn't, and skim some off the top tax-free. Or you could say that a rundown unit in the basement was the hottest attraction on the block, and launder money through it. The machines would never let you out. The only things tracking their actual use were mechanical counters inside, very easy to manipulate and rig. The machines required way fewer people to operate, and, unlike a shop, could be easily physically stolen from competitors. 
What's not to love about coin-ops? Vending machines were popular, but the gadgets that could earn money without regular restocking were in a different league entirely, such as the music players. Late 19th century coin-operated phonographs were pretty terrible. There was no sound amplification, and you had to stand awkwardly near the unit on an earphone leash to hear anything. If you actually wanted to fill a room with sound, you'd have a mechanical piano. But then, in the early 20th century, we get Leader Forrest with his triode, and companies like Magnavox start making electric loudspeakers, and then extend the technology to record players with electric sound pickup. The quality of recording improved, the sales of records soared, allowing more performers to profit from their work. And then, in 1920, organized crime got the biggest gift from the American government it could wish for. The Prohibition. For the next 13 years, most of the things people did or drank for fun in the United States were constitutionally outlawed. Not that it stopped anyone from doing it, but now all the money they were spending went into a massive shadow economy. Bootlegging became an honorable job. There were piles of dirty cash to launder, millions of tipsy people to entertain with music, and jazz bands weren't always on hand or cheap. 1920 was also the year commercial radio stations went on air in the country, but they wouldn't play what you needed when you needed it. Unfortunately, neither would the coin-op phonographs. They had only one record or a fixed sequence of them inside, either flats or cylinders, but the latter were on their way out. In 1927, however, a new kind of machine entered the stage. Coin-op phonographs letting you pick out of a few records. They were not called jukeboxes yet, but it was coming soon. The first machines of this kind, by Seberg, I believe, did not work well, yet the idea definitely caught on, and by the mid-30s, jukebox operators bought them by the tens of thousands and provided the music industry a third of its record sales. But that wasn't the only way the humble jukebox could make people dance to its tune. It let the mob get its foot in the door of the more reluctant establishments, some operator offers a restaurant owner to install a jukebox, or a vendor, almost at no cost, on a loan, with the agreement that the price of the unit will be paid from the machine's take. Well, who comes in to open the unit and collect the take? The Mafia guys, who suddenly discover that the machine is not making enough cash to pay for itself. No, it isn't. Unless you want trouble, friend, we'll have to arrange some other way of repaying that loan. Hey, have you got a back room where we could put a couple of slot machines? Another door the jukebox opened was the door of the music industry. Say, you're trying to start your or someone else's music career. Even if you're good, it's hard to get noticed at first. But if you scrape enough money together, you could have a record released, and then you hand the record and the rest of your money to the local big boss running the jukebox racket. Because... Funny thing, the guys who own the machines decide what records go in them. Just make sure to contact a group that is not running machines for money laundering, since theirs are probably not going to be functional at all. If you do everything right and your new business partner doesn't get gunned down in the streets, you're famous. And you could get even more famous. Music charts of the time were ranking records based on store sales, radio plays, and jukebox plays, and those jukebox statistics were still based on easy-to-rig counters. 
If you somehow got into the machine chart, radio editors may get interested in the hot new thing to capture their audience, and record sales follow. Congratulations, you've got your stardom, and a debt to the mob you won't repay in a lifetime. But you know, you could also simply make money operating the machines. It's just a wild idea that popped in my head. Let's see how much. A single play was traditionally a nickel, five cents. In the first half of the 20th century, music would be coming on 78 RPM records that could hold three to four minutes. If we're aiming for money, we'll probably stock our jukebox with three-minute songs. If it's running continuously, we're getting around 20 plays an hour. Multiply by five cents, and that's a dollar an hour. Doesn't sound like much? That's almost double the average hourly wages of an American worker in manufacturing up until World War II. And the machine doesn't need to spend any of it on food. If you have a few dozen or a few hundred, their take can be collected by a small crew, and the records that go in them... oh, you just use cheap counterfeit ones. If you wanted to, the machines could make you rich. Or dead, because the struggle for controlling them did get bloody at times, people were killed, and the companies making them pretend that they were surprised, shocked even, that their product was involved in something illegal. The general public was aware of how profitable coin-ops were, and once in a while someone would save up and go looking for a way to get into this business, no matter how dirty it is, because then they could retire early on a mountain of nickels. They'd start asking around, and would soon find a fool willing to part with not just a machine, but a whole route. So, a chain of machines bringing steady income. Of course, our buyer is no dummy, they're not going to trust some claim that the route is profitable. They come visit the office, go out on the route to see the machines, look at the take collected, and to make sure they check again and again. This can take a few weeks, you have to be certain. At last, the buyer is satisfied. They hand over the money, sign the papers, and sit back, dreaming what they'll do with the next stake. The next stake is a couple of dollars. Why? Because all these weeks, the seller had a few guys running around, stuffing the machines with coins they collected in front of the buyer, and put back into the machines the next day. Coin-ops were extremely versatile, and loved by all levels of criminal hierarchy. Even the top bosses were in it. Late in 1957, there was a big meeting of criminal bosses from all over the United States to talk strategy and spheres of influence, the Appalachian Meeting. The police got alerted and arrested 62 attendees. Robert Kennedy, who was into fighting organized crime and still alive at the time, estimated that out of 58 bosses there, 9 were or had been involved in the coin machine business. And that's just legally involved, not running slot machines in the back rooms. Britain, though, went even further. The jukeboxes that gave a leg up to many musicians too radical for the BBC in the 50s, think future members of the Beatles, were operated by one Gordon Lonsdale, who later turned out to be a deep-cover Soviet spy, slipping Western currency and secrets under the Iron Curtain. Here is a related-ish story from 1962, the year Space War was finished. In the small hours of the 26th of April, the residents of Elmwood Park Village near Chicago heard the screeching of tires, gunshots, shattering glass, a flurry of gunshots, and a car speeding away. When the police arrived, officers discovered a crashed grey Ford Thunderbird with three dead bodies inside. 
The victims were identified as one Philip Scabo, unemployed, his brother Ronald, and Ronald's girlfriend Lydia Epshire, a simple waitress. The examination of the scene revealed that the car had first been shot at from a distance, and after it crashed, the killers walked right up to it and shot everyone in the head to be sure. Lydia wasn't hit by the initial gunfire and hadn't done anything, but they shot her in the head three times anyway. The police lauded the killing as one of the best-planned mob executions. The person the police tried to get the most answers out of was Philip's freshly minted widow, Barbara. For example, answers to Why was your unemployed husband with a criminal record driving around with a thousand dollars in cash in his pocket on the night of his death? She mumbled something, not much. But then, talking to a Chicago Daily Tribune reporter, Barbara couldn't resist a shot at self-promotion and let it slip that Philip must have died trying to launch her musical career. On reading that, in the paper, the police immediately re-invited the merry widow for way, way, way more questions, because in the back of the shot-up car there were records with songs of one Nikki North and a bundle of publicity articles singing her praises. Turned out Nikki North was Barbara's pseudonym. Now the police wanted to know of any jukebox racket connections, while the press reminded everybody how jukeboxes offered a bloody backstage pass into the entertainment industry. In case anyone is curious if the police got the killers, no, the police didn't. But we do know what happened now. The Scavo brothers managed a bar. One night they kicked out some guy named Billy McCarthy. Well, something like it. This part comes from a book where names have been altered. A few nights later, the brothers kicked out Billy and his mate Jimmy Miraglia. As it turned out, Billy and Jimmy could hold a grudge and were associates of the Chicago outfit. They got some weapons from their crew boss, the guy who wrote the book, and did the killing. So the best planned mob execution, according to the police, was kinda the work of two angry idiots with guns making it up on the fly. We do know they were idiots because, one, killing people just like that was frowned on, and to make it worse, the bar they picked fights in was protected by the outfit. Two, Elmwood Park, where the killing happened after the chase, was an outfit-controlled territory, and you didn't just whack people there without a higher authorization. And three, they killed Lydia, the waitress, an innocent bystander who had nothing to do with anything. Even the mob had standards. The case was handed to an up-and-coming enforcer who tracked down Billy and tortured him for three days to find out who else was involved in the procedure later faithfully recreated in the 1995 movie Casino. Yes, the vice scene. Then they came after Jimmy. So the jukeboxes were not really the cause of the Elmwood Park murders, not even close. But the police, the press, and the public imagination latched onto the coin-op connection immediately. The industry had a reputation. As a side note, in 1969, in Japan, a guy named Kagemasa Kozuki started a jukebox repair and rental company. In 74, he and three partners incorporated under a name made up of the beginnings of their names, Konami. Konami didn't do much of interest to us in the 70s. It only entered the video game industry in 78 after seeing how much money Space Invaders were raking in. 
naturally it started by ripping off Space Invaders. Konami will make its grand entrance in the 80s, so for now let's just make note of it and continue with the Weasel Show. By the 60s, coin-ops were not limited to jukeboxes and vending machines. There were the scammy crane games, there was the now-illegal pinball, and there were all the seemingly normal electromechanical cabinets. However, the industry trade show where all the new coin-ops were presented was organized by the Music Operators Association of America. And I can't help but wonder if the abundance of games where playing sessions had a time limit was dictated by the need to make them earn nickels at the same rate as jukeboxes or faster. A chart of the average playtime per nickel in electromechanical cabinets matched against average hit song length could be interesting. I don't have one, though. Not everyone in the field was willing to work with the mob. Bill Nutting, for example, loathed them. He got into coin-ops to sell computer quiz, which he thought was a neat machine, and then discovered how crime-ridden the industry actually was. His refusal to deal may have contributed to Nutting Associates' slow growth. At the same time, Nutting had a special weapon, allowing him to operate outside the mob's sphere of influence. Computer quiz. The unit looked brainy, nothing like the usual stuff in bars and arcades, so many proprietors who refused to have any kind of coin-op on the premises were willing to take the quiz machine. And that's how Nutting Associates operated around organized crime not with it. Then Bushnell came in with his idea of a space war ripoff in a cabinet with a TV screen, and that again was something new and different. Though, now that I think about it, his dream of a restaurant with coin-ops had the potential to become a money-laundering heaven. It's hard to tell how much of the 70s video game industry had shady connections, since it involved a lot of new people, rebellious, disrespectful both of the mob and the government patronizing it, and at the same time, old electromechanical companies like Bally Midway were also there with decades of coin-op experience. Alan Elkhorn got a gun waved at him since the new video arcades and cabinets were disrupting the existing territorial agreements between criminal groups. Steve Bristow, when he was going out to collect the take from the Atari route, had his wife with him with a hatchet in her hands covering his back, because straight-up robbing operators was also a practice. Oh, and funny thing, Ramtech's $7 million manufacturing plant burned to the ground in November 76, just before they were about to sign a big deal, and just a month after they'd let their insurance expire. A surgically precise accident. But fires happened all the time, half of Allied Leisure's headquarters burned down in 74. The principled Nutting Associates didn't burn, but did go bankrupt in 74, and the following year, Bill ended up selling it to a company specializing in slot machines. Oh, the irony. That was the kind of business that benefited from the new technology in the second half of the 70s. Of course, the first video poker machine with animated screens actually predated computer space. It was the 1970 Pokermatic by Dale Electronics. But later in the decade, with microprocessors and better displays and networking, one-armed bandits entered a new age. They were flashy, they could tempt fools with increased payouts, and, with people not really knowing how computers work, a sense that the new machines were not the old mechanical ones that were rigged so easily. In places where it was legal, video gambling flourished. In places where it was not, the new technology gave gambling a way to hide. 
Sometimes you'd see arcade machines with blatant rip-offs of hits like Space Invaders or Pac-Man, but bad. Absolutely unenjoyable, running poorly or impossible to play without losing immediately. If you encountered such a unit, it might have actually been a front for secret gambling. There could be a hidden physical switch reconnecting the screen and the controls from one circuit board to a second one with some video slots or something of the kind. Alternatively, the game of chance could be hidden behind a secret sequence of inputs that took you from bad space invaders to good video poker. So it's kinda like an easter egg, but the easter egg is the real game. This practice is something researchers of old arcades have to keep in mind, because an irredeemably awful game may be intentionally so, and not the real selling point of a unit. The one thing that the advance of technology killed stone dead was the jukebox. Video games and pinball created a stiff competition without the steep maintenance costs, music label royalties were rising, many places started playing background music all the time, and in 79, Sony released the first of the Walkman line, a compact cassette player allowing you to take the music you liked anywhere you went. Operators couldn't even go from charging quarters to dollars because no one would pay a dollar for a tune. Many manufacturers switched to different products. By 81, jukeboxes were on their way out. Video games were in, the industry was booming in the United States, Yet game producers were not happy when their top titles were copied by others. Firebombing the competitors wasn't always an option, and most protections against jackals would have to come from the legal side of things. However, in the earliest years of the industry, no one was quite sure how exactly the law was applicable to video games. It was relatively easy with electromechanical cabinets. Each one is a machine, patent law knows how to work with that. We've run into board game, toy, and puzzle patents too. As decades flew by, it became increasingly difficult to receive a patent for anything new though, because most new things were minor variations of the old ones. Pinball-related patents were controlled by a few big players in the field in the 70s, making it hard for new competition to arise or for foreign companies to enter the market. So European and Japanese manufacturers stayed out of American pinball, even though they possibly could have offered something. Well, Japan did have its own steel ball fad, Pachinko, a cousin of pinball, also derived from a variant of Bagatelle. While Pachinko parlor turnover has dropped like a rock over the past few years, they used to be a major part of Japan's economy, exceeding the country's car exports, for example. Pachinko parlors exist in a shady grey area wherein it's not considered illegal gambling, only because they're not rewarding winning with money. Instead, the steel balls you win by getting lucky with your starting steel balls are exchanged for silly souvenirs. Among those, you might request small custom-made medals, plates, or chips. Then you leave the parlor and go across the street into a pawn shop run by a guy who looks just like the dude who just given you the chips, because they're brothers. The pawn guy takes your souvenir chips and gives you cash for them, because he can see their true value. Everything is on the level. Recently, Japan has legalized gambling in some areas and cracked down on the parlors to drive the patrons to more classic casinos, but it doesn't seem to be working particularly well. While the notorious Yakuza did have some involvement in this business, historically it's been dominated by Koreans and the Japanese of Korean origin. The reason for it is that when Japan occupied Korea, it treated Koreans like trash, both on the peninsula and in Japan itself. 
Then Japan lost World War II, lost its imperial acquisitions, but not the nationalist spirit. So in the rebuilding country, Korean immigrants were still widely discriminated against and banned from lots of jobs. Disagreeing with the suggestion to go starve to death in a ditch, enterprising Koreans made their own jobs with pachinko and other services. This led to a continued prejudice against Koreans, and even in some modern Japanese video games, like the Yakuza series, you see Korean characters portrayed as super untrustworthy by default, and then everyone is surprised when they turn out to be decent guys. Oh, and continuing the fine tradition of Gordon Lonsdale, apparently some pachinko parlor operators remember their homeland before the war that split it and sympathize with North Korea, funneling money into the regime that fires rockets in the direction of Japan just to see if they work. Cash-only business is a wild ride. A couple of interesting Japanese companies got their start in pachinko. Well, actually, it kind of started with a candy shop operated by businessman Kenzo Tsujimoto in 68 or 69. There isn't much information about that period of his career online. All appears to come from a few pages of a Japanese book. Apparently, the candy shop had some fancy cotton candy machines that always drew a crowd. Maybe they were coin-operated. Somehow, these units got Tsujimoto to look into coin-op entertainment, and the company entered the 70s already dealing in pachinko machines. In 74, under the name IPM, it got involved in video games as a hardware supplier and a rental service, I believe, but its first original cabinet came only in 78, after the company saw how much money Space Invaders was raking in. Its first titles were licensed copies of Space Invaders. Around this time, IPM got an angry letter from IBM, and it had to be renamed to IRAM, International Rental Electronics Machines. Also around this time, IRM's founder Kenzo Tsujimoto founded a new company called IRM. The guy clearly had the theme going. Maybe he was trying to pass it off for IBM. IRM also made arcade cabinets, but in neat outer shells, and it called them capsule computers. And that's why IRM would soon become Capcom. We'll be hearing about IRM and Capcom again in the 80s. Going back to America in the 70s, the arrival of video games meant new companies got the big patents in the new field. We already know that Magnavox and Sanders Associates claimed the very concept of playing on your TV set, spent a few years sharpening knives, and then skimmed off the top of the industry for 20 years. Others tried to argue in court that those patents were questionable, say Atari in the mid-70s, Nintendo in the late 80s, even implying that Magnavox and Sanders cheated at patent application, covering up the existence of earlier games, and meeting with a patent examiner privately, off the record. The accusations didn't stick. In the arcades, Atari had a number of patents, but as I've said before, the company never had the cash to prosecute infringement, and tried to outrun the jackals by releasing more and more new games, and occasionally stealing ideas itself. But what about those other smaller companies? They wanted to protect their products too, in some way. Sadly, all the cabinets were made of similar components and used similar game mechanisms. Not much meat on the bones for the patent office. Which brings us to the first video game lawsuit from 1973. As you may remember, that was when Allied Leisure, the company selling a reverse-engineered copy of Pong and its derivatives, tried to sue Midway for ripping off its design, a four-player Pong variant. 
Having no leg to stand on patent-wise, Allied Leisure tried to appeal to copyright law. I should explain the difference, just in case, though I myself had only a short course on the matter. Let's use a classic example. Suppose you've baked a highly original cake, took a picture, and wrote down its recipe. Once you publish the recipe with the picture, they become protected by copyright law, and no one would be allowed to copy them without a license. But copyright specifically protects the expression, that text and that picture. Others can rewrite the recipe in different words, others can use the recipe to bake the cake, others can take other pictures of cakes, and copyright law won't have much to say on the matter. It protects particular existing things, expression. A song you hear has copyright tags attached to the lyrics, the composition of the music, the specific arrangements of the music, the singular performance, its recording, and the rights to those are sold off in very precise, exclusive and non-exclusive licenses to put the song on an album or broadcast it or use it in a video. Though most money comes in from suing people for infringement. Copyright law is about squeezing every cent out of an artist's work, which may sound good for the artist, but then you realize the extra cents go into the pockets of copyright lawyers, because they are the only ones who understand the Byzantine copyright law. It's a cozy racket if you can get into it. However, copyright law is like Eliza in that it doesn't understand the meaning of words. It won't protect the method of your cake. It doesn't care if your cake is even edible. Patent law does all of that. But to get a patent, you need to apply for one, pay money, and demonstrate that your cake is like no other before it. It's kind of like defending a thesis, except your creation may be actually useful. Once you get a patent, it grants you a limited time window during which the process resulting in your cake is protected, and making it without a license from you would be an infringement. Going back to games, all game rules and principles fall within the realm of patent law. They are abstract, they are relations between the pieces. Which is what makes it surprising that Allied Leisure try to work the copyright infringement angle. What is there even to copyright in a 1973 Pong variant? The image on the screen is some rectangles, as in every other video game of the time. The visual design of the cabinet itself is irrelevant. There's no music, and the sound effects are generic beeps. And the title is a matter of trademark law. And yet, Allied Leisure's lawyers found a way, and it was almost brilliant. Almost because it didn't help them win the lawsuit. They presented to the court a picture, a schematic of the game's circuit board, and argued that other companies were making unlicensed reproductions of this image. It's brilliant since, at the time, all video game logic and rules had to be implemented as physical circuitry or transistors wired together, and everyone used cheap mass-produced components, and efficient designs serving the same function would look similar too. Games with nearly identical mechanics would have nearly identical sections on their circuit boards. Unfortunately for Allied Leisure, each game was probably a stolen design in the first place. Copyright law would have to wait a little more before getting involved in games. But it does get involved by the end of the decade, protecting texts, graphics, music, and even level designs from copying. Many games of the late 70s and early 80s had everything happen on a single screen, and something like Pac-Man had a distinct pattern of maze walls you'd clearly see even in a poorly lit arcade hall. If someone copied that, they could be sued. 
I believe Nintendo was successful in taking down the most blatant copies of its games in the 80s precisely because their developers were too lazy to change level layouts. But as I've said, copyright is only skin deep. What about new patents and video games? In 76-77, games are entering a new age. They are becoming software. Alright, let's see who can patent some... No. No, no. Nobody can patent a thing. In the early 60s, at Bell Labs, owned by communications giant AT&T, a couple of engineers came up with a method for compressing binary data, replacing a long sequence of ones and zeros by a shorter one with no loss of information. A computer could run the program in a flash, and then you'd have less data to send over the wires, so it was great. The engineers, Gary Benson and Arthur Tabbert, went to the patent office to register their invention in 1963. The office told them to come back when they had something worth patenting. The reasoning for the rejection is delicious. The program was a series of operations, mental steps. It took some numbers in binary form and produced a different number as the result of these operations. Ultimately, the algorithm was a bunch of mathematical formulas tied together with mental processes like if this, then do that. And wouldn't you know, earlier court rulings had rendered both mental processes and mathematical formulas non-patentable. In the formulas case, the reasoning was that mathematics expressed relations found in nature. And even in America you could not patent nature. So... Benson and Tabbert had nothing. Their work was about as patentable as a patch of grass. The engineers Bell Labs and AT&T disagreed, filed an appeal, and started a nearly decade-long campaign to get the invention recognized. The implications of the patent rejection went beyond a single program. Any program, all software, could be described as maths and mental processes. That's what software is! Just last time I talked about dungeon-generating algorithms, and they're all maths with graphics sprayed on. So, after every rejection, AT&T appealed and escalated and had supporters in this, since the fate of the entire software field was at stake. The matter reached the US Supreme Court in 72. And the court said, Still no, you cannot patent a program. Naturally, it didn't reach the big decision on its own. It let experts, other computer companies comment, weigh in... There was an argument that different programs made the internal components of a computer interact with one another in different ways, so each program turned the hardware into a specific machine worthy of protection. However, there was a massive entity tipping the scales towards no. The corporation recommending that AT&T be told to take its algorithm and shove it was IBM. In the 60s, IBM was vocally opposed to software patents. It knew what was up. Throughout history, there have been situations when a few people got a claim on all key technologies in a new field and left it stagnating for years. The Wright brothers got the patents for most things one needed to build an airplane and then never made a single good one. Or, say, if two people independently created similar programs and one of them got a patent, the other's program would be infringing just because it's similar. IBM did not want that to happen, because it was selling or leasing computers, and if there were lots of useful programs out there, businesses would want more computers to take advantage of the software. 
It's strangely close to how activists wanted to spread programs in the 70s to boost the microcomputer revolution. Anyway, IBM believed that copyright law was sufficient for software. In addition to what I've already mentioned, it could protect the program's source code. Publish the code, it's a text, and if someone else copies it to sell, you can go after them with a pack of vicious lawyers. I should point out that this was somewhat theoretical for IBM, there wasn't a big software market in the 60s, and instead of selling software, the corporation mostly gave it away as a bonus with its computers. This annoyed the people who did try to sell their competing programs with little success. So this anti-patent push from IBM did not come from the goodness of its heart, corporations don't have hearts, but simply because it was good for its business model. More software, any software, means more computer sales for us. In 72, AT&T and a few early producers of commercial programs were beaten, but that wasn't the end of it. A new challenger entered the Supreme Court just as things in the game industry started to get interesting in 78, and I'm certain a few corporate lawyers at Warner were monitoring the proceedings in case they opened new opportunities for Atari. The new guy in the ring was one Dale Fluke, an inventor. He had invented a program for monitoring the state of a chemical process used in manufacturing of something or other, and if the process was about to go disastrously wrong, the program would flash an alert on the screen so that you could stop it or run away or get the camera. Rejected at the patent office on the grounds of the 1972 ruling, Fluke argued all the way to the Supreme Court that his program was not just a general process for converting one kind of number into another kind of number. His creation had a narrow industrial application and did not even produce a number as its output. It produced a warning message. Going back to games for a moment, this would be relevant for something like Dragon Maze, where numbers were only the means to get a level you could move your character in. So, the Supreme Court examined the inventor's argument and concluded, No, mate. Your program still takes numbers it received from pressure and temperature sensors, then carries out mathematical operations with those numbers, then produces a single number, and if that number is in a certain range, it shows an alert. This is mathematical formulas and mental processes covered by a fig leaf. Buzz off. And that's how software patents were defeated a second time. The third court ruling in this classic trilogy came in 1981, when a program was allowed to be included in a patent. However, the court made it absolutely clear that in this case, software was being accepted as a part of a patentable physical manufacturing process, where one step was managed by a computer checking temperature readings and calculating when to open up a mold. So software by itself was still a no-go, but riding shotgun with something valid, it was okay. When American patent examiners, who had to deal with this daily as opposed to once every few years, asked how much of the valid thing was required to make it okay, what's the exact criteria, they got no answer. They're still waiting. And that's how software patents started to drift into sort of a matter of bribes and personal preference. By the 90s, the restrictions were so eroded and lobbied into nothing that a number of shady companies managed to get patents on algorithms they had no hand in creating, just by attaching them to something, 
and software patents became the domain of patent trolls, joined even by their former enemies like IBM and eventually Microsoft. But returning to the software-based games of the 60s, the 70s and the 80s, they dodged a massive nuclear bullet. We've seen people create similar games independently within a year or two from one another, We've seen someone release a game, then someone else take its core mechanisms and add a few features on top, and yet another person look at the second game and decide that it was something they could work with, all within the span of a year. A patent would have made it all illegal without a license for 17 years after it had been issued. And that's at a time when many had a chance to engage with and contribute to games only in their high school and college years. Let's explore a few possibilities here. Suppose IBM and Mabel Addis patented the Sumerian game in the mid-60s. So, a game where you make decisions regarding limited resources, then the system calculates the outcome based on some formulas, and throws a computer-picked random event into the mix. This kind of thing. Had this come to pass, 101 basic computer games would have had a lower number on the cover. Many early teletype amusements worked like that, whether they were about football or about the American Civil War. The original Oregon and Lemonade Stand would have been patent infringing too, and that's your staples of the 80s educational software nipped in the bud. Of course, IBM would have probably allowed these games if their creators forked over corporate rates for licensing. Lunar Lander might have dodged infringement on account of not having any random events in flight, and Star Trek had the map for you to explore. If Mayfield and Hewlett Packard patent Star Trek, well, removing the copyright infringing stuff, that takes out Star Raiders, and possibly games using Star Trek's text-based world representation, like Rogue, and so on. So games as a medium were lucky that similar ones could be made with no fear of massive fines. Okay, this also enabled the practice of what we now call game cloning, when rip-offs of popular titles are produced nearly identical mechanically, but with copyrighted material swapped for something different. But it's better than no games at all, right? Also, the ineligibility of software for patents may have been one of the reasons no one respected programmers in the 70s. Their work could not bring employers major licensing profits for years to come. I'm sure Atari would have put at least some effort into not being a revolving door for coders if they held useful patents. Their creators' misery aside, games were able to flourish in the shadow of IBM. The corporation itself didn't care about games much. It had not yet reached that stage of its life when it would consider paying well above market rates just to get a cutting-edge game to help sell its hardware. But it's coming, in the 80s, and it will have something to do with IBM's attempts to dominate the microcomputer market. But first, it had to get there. It started in the early 70s, when IBM engineers put together the Palm processor. PALM stands for Put All Logic in Microcode. I'm not going to explain what microcode is, because A, it's very technical, and B, what IBM called microcode, and what the rest of the industry called microcode, are different things, so why bother? Now, because this PALM processor used a microcode, IBM called it a microprocessor. For everyone else, microprocessors were integrated circuits, single chips, but not for IBM, it was nowhere near having one of those. Palm was spread over a whole circuit board. However, IBM was able to report that it had a microprocessor in 73, just as everyone was racing to introduce new and better ones. Weasels. 
The first IBM computer with Palm was a 1973 prototype called Scamp, a relatively high-performance desktop unit that got good press, surely not based entirely on the datasheet supplied by the manufacturer. The next computer in the Palm line is one I've mentioned already, the IBM 5100 of 75. Designed for engineers operating in remote locations, it was portable, it weighed just under 25 kilos, and its price started at $10,000 and went up every time you blinked. Nobody invited the 5100 to the microcomputer revolution. In 78, it was followed up by the 5110, another desktop unit with Palm inside, but marketed for all businesses and intended for office use. According to IBM, several hundred orders were placed immediately, but I don't know what several hundred means in IBM speak. Could be 200, could be 101, could be 30. The next system came out in 1980, the 5120, which shipped with new programs for businesses and was the cheapest computer IBM had ever released. How cheap was it? The lowest price you could get it for was $9,340. Although the configuration IBM presented in all promotional materials would actually cost you $13,000. Still, an order of magnitude or two above what people were willing to pay for a home computer. While IBM was a massive inert corporation rooted in its ways, it was not impenetrably thick. It did notice that microcomputers were happening, and early in 78 started a project to develop one with a microprocessor. Of course, IBM did not have its own microprocessor, so it had to pick out of those available on the market. They went with the Intel 8085. The new computer took three years to develop, and ultimately got called System Slash 23 Data Master. While technically the Data Master was a microcomputer, IBM's first, it weighed over 40 kilos and was priced at around $10,000. Yes, they took a smaller processor and made a bigger computer. So when it was announced to the public in July 1981, nobody was excited. But then, suddenly, in August 1981, IBM proclaimed, Oh yeah, and we have another micro coming out, the 5150. And people looked at the expected price and then back at IBM and said, Oi, you forgot a zero at the end? And IBM went, No, you can actually buy this. And everyone was amazed. There was just this question. Where the hell did this IBM personal computer come from? If you want to read a well-researched article on the origin story of the 5150, I'd recommend The Complete History of the IBM PC by Jimmy Marr, published on Ars Technica, but you're listening to this for some reason, so I'll give you the short version. The story starts, strangely enough, with Atari. After releasing its 8-bit microcomputers, the ones people bought to play Star Raiders, it felt a surge of confidence and pitched an idea to the chairman of IBM. Atari could develop a home computer for IBM. When this idea reached the corporation's management committee, they thought it was the dumbest thing they'd ever heard. At the same time, it was embarrassing that IBM, the supposed leader in computing, was being schooled by some video game outfit. The chairman was interested in making something new too. 
So, they gave one of IBM directors, Bill Liu, who was loosely aware of home computers, a month to draft a proposal in July 1980. Liu assembled a team of similarly aware people and got to work. In August 1980, the project was given the green light. This means that the development of the 5150 took only a year, and that's not just the computer itself, but also the preparations for production, distribution, and marketing. For IBM, this was lightning fast, and achieved because the team was organized as a pretend independent company within the corporation. They were free to shape the personal computer as they saw fit. The history pages on IBM's own website make it sound like it was this system that introduced open hardware architecture to the world, meaning the ability to add and swap expansion cards, other parts, and a detailed technical reference explaining how everything worked. But we know that these came from the Altair 8800, and the Homebrew Computer Club, and the Apple II, and IBM is just following the pioneers here. Another reason they went with an open design was that there was no time to develop any proprietary chips, test and produce them anyway, so the whole computer had to be made with reliable off-the-shelf components, controllers, memory units, so what's another one in there? One of those components was the Intel 8088 microprocessor. They were familiar with the brand now. The issue with the processor was that it was proprietary Intel technology, and it was the only supplier. Nothing else on the market could replace it. Meaning IBM's new project relied on a part with only one source. That was against every sane company's policies. So it started probing, negotiating, and the result of this was that around the end of 81, Intel got roped into a technology exchange agreement. Not with IBM, but with one of Intel's own suppliers, and its name was, and is, Advanced Micro Devices, better known as AMD. As the result of this deal, IBM was satisfied, it got two processor suppliers, AMD was happy, it got a boost of the company profile, and Intel was... eh... on the one hand, a big deal with IBM, on the other hand, it had just produced a rival that would be allowed to make exact replicas of its processors for years to come. Not surprisingly, a few years down the line, Intel would start trying to wiggle out from under this great deal. Going back to 1980, the new IBM computer would need not only hardware, but also something to greet the users when they started it up, such as a basic interpreter or an operating system, or why not both? BASIC naturally was provided by Microsoft. IBM thought that it could supply an operating system as well, but Gates said, no, we don't do those, you need to ask Gary Kildall. Kildall ran a company called Digital Research and held the rights to the most popular operating system of the late 70s, CP-M. Microsoft and Digital Research even had a bit of a thing going. The very first hardware product by Microsoft was an expansion card for the Apple II that replaced the computer's MOS 6502 processor with a Zilog Z80. There was no CPM for a MOS processor, but there was one for the Z80, so people were more eager to buy Apple and get the Microsoft card bundled with the Digital Research OS. CPM, Control Program Monitor, or Control Program for Microcomputers, was nothing fancy. No graphical interface, just a prompt for typing in commands and parameters, and its output was all text too. But it did make managing your computer easier. It organized data into files, each with a name of up to 8 characters, 
plus a three-character extension after a period that told you what kind of file it was. Say, a text file would have the extension .txt, a compiled file would be a .com, and an executable one would be a .exe. You could not organize your files into some kind of folders yet, but it was still handy. So IBM wanted it for its Intel 8088 system, set up a meeting with Kildil, and we don't know what happened there exactly, but there was no deal. Meanwhile, at a hardware company that worked with Microsoft, Seattle Consumer Products, one Tim Patterson was already working on his own quick and dirty operating system, QDOS, for the Intel 8086. The 86 is a more expensive but fully compatible twin of the 88. Patterson had started his work even before IBM got mocked into developing the personal computer. Tim's development process was to take the CPM reference book and recreate what Kildall's system did as closely as possible. It would have been illegal had software been protected by patents, but this is IBM's lobbying from a decade earlier paying off. So just as everyone involved in a PC project was wishing upon a star for an operating system, Patterson contacted Microsoft and reported that he had something quick and dirty for the 86 and asked if they wanted some. They did. Of course, in the following months, Microsoft would first weasel its way into selling QDOS licenses on behalf of SCP, and then it would poach Tim Patterson from the company and then buy the OS. And that's how QDOS would become MS-DOS. Microsoft Dirty Operating System. Well, okay, officially it's DISC, but uh, we know where it's been. Yes, Microsoft's first operating system was a hijacked project to clone an existing OS. Bill Gates isn't that different from the people I talked about in the beginning of the episode. Once all the hardware of the 5150 got put together, and BASIC and the operating system was running, and the increasingly furious Gary Kildall was placated by a contract to release an official CPM on the PC as well, the new IBM computer was announced, as I said, in August 81. Orders started coming in, even though neither the new operating system nor the 8088 had much software for them yet, and IBM frankly was unable to tell anyone when the new computer would start to ship. But the corporation had the power of the brand, and smaller business owners who'd never had the pleasure of dealing with IBM before flocked to get the new machine. The build quality was solid, the performance was... okay, for a business user. None of the tried and tested off-the-shelf parts inside were exactly the latest. As any researcher of the early 80s games discovers sooner rather than later, IBM PC ports are nearly always the worst ones. They bring abysmal graphics, ear-rending sound effects, obsolete interface. I'll go into the details of this in the next season. So, the 5150 was out, and its detailed technical reference, mass-produced third-party components, and open architecture served as an open invitation not just to make expansion cards, but to copy the entire system outright. And that's exactly what a number of companies started doing from 1982 on. Early IBM clones closely replicated the hardware, but when it came to software, they were hit and miss. Some were only partially compatible, some could run nearly everything the original could. More worrying for IBM was that some of the fully compatible clones were offered cheaper or had more useful features than the 5150 itself. 
IBM still outsold the imitations, it wasn't like the early Pong situation, but the corporation's lawyers were drafting some ideas for how to cull the clone ranks. And then Apple offered them a solution on a silver platter. Like the 5150, the Apple II suffered from its share of copycats. It got really bad when in 82, Franklin Computer Corporation released the ACE line. The ACE 100 and 1000 were exact, 100% compatible copies of two Apple II models, with the company logo swapped. They were such good copies, apparently, that in the user documentation for the ACE, there were a few spots where they'd forgotten to scrub out Apple and print ACE. That good. Realizing that trying to protect an open hardware system itself in court was not a sound plan, Apple latched onto a desperate strategy of trying to establish its copyright to one piece of software, neither the form nor the kind of which had previously been addressed by copyright law. As for the form, Apple was defending its rights to a program baked into a ROM chip inside the computer, and not published anywhere else. As I mentioned earlier today, the regular procedure for copywriting your software was to publish the source code listing and maybe register it somewhere just to be sure. It's a text, it's protected by copyright. Most programs in BASIC, even commercial ones, also came essentially as text files with code you could read yourself if you wanted to. There was commercial software and games that shipped compiled without human-readable code, but the degree of its copyright protection had never been tested in court. This, by the way, must have been the reason Steve Bosniak had a panic attack when Don Worth and his friend sent him the reverse-engineered code listing of Apple DOS in the previous episode. They had the code, they could be scammers intending to publish it, while Apple had chosen not to, and nobody knew whose side the court would take if it came to it. In Apple vs. Franklin, the creators of Ace were arguing that no published source, no copyright. As for the kind of program in question, Apple was trying to protect the Apple II BIOS. BIOS, Basic Input-Output System, is another thing Gary Kildall came up with as a term. It's the program that makes a computer tick. Literally, it runs before everything else does, making sure that all the key hardware components are present and accounted for, and only then it starts looking for a storage device with something to load, preferably an operating system. Though BIOS cannot really load an entire operating system itself, so instead it loads a tiny part of it, which can function on its own, and then that part loads a larger part, and then they together load some more, and gradually the OS loads itself in a process someone likened to pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. Which is why they say the operating system boots. At this point, the BIOS has already done its job, it's kicking back, but without it, nothing would have worked, and you'd be sitting in front of an electrified box with silicon and metal junk. And this is why Franklin Computer argued that a BIOS was not a creative work, but a technical necessity and almost a part of hardware itself, a functional mechanism. Yeah, you could say that copywriting BIOS is like copywriting hydraulic fluid. The reason Franklin copied the BIOS in the first place is that just copying the hardware of a computer is not enough for full software compatibility. You need to make sure it all interacts and loads stuff the same way too. So Franklin engineers simply took a ROM chip from the motherboard of the Apple II, dumped its contents, and made exact copies. 
Unfortunately for Franklin, in 83 the court decided that doing something of the sort was most definitely a copyright infringement and ruled in favor of Apple. This had interesting consequences. First of all, the affair scared Apple so much that it implemented a contingency plan for its upcoming computer, the Macintosh. In its BIOS, there was a hidden chunk of code that could only be run if you knew the exact address in the memory. The idea was that if another Apple clone appeared, its manufacturers could be asked to bring it into the courtroom, where a representative of Apple, maybe Steve Jobs himself, would dramatically walk up to the system, dramatically type in the address, even more dramatically hit a button, and suddenly the screen of the infringing system would show an image with the caption Stolen Copyright Apple, and a picture of a guy behind bars. It was such a neat trick that the small team behind this easter egg were even looking forward to someone cloning the Macintosh to see it in action. The joke's on them, it never happened. Also, Microsoft had been hiding its credit in nearly all versions of Microcomputer Basic for years by that point. It was added around 77, possibly by Bill Gates himself, and then another similar easter egg was added on top of that specifically to retain company credit in the version for the Commodore PET, where, under contract terms, Microsoft had to strip away the copyright notice displayed when the interpreter loaded. It was so protective of its name and basic, one might even get the impression Microsoft invented the language. No, it didn't. And let's not forget that time Nintendo got caught red-handed stealing code. See, Nintendo's first video arcade cabinets in the late 70s and early 80s were part developed for it by others, including a company Ikegami Tsushinki. It programmed games based on Nintendo's designs, produced circuit boards, got paid, and let Nintendo soak in all the glory and all the credit. When in 1981 Nintendo released its first major arcade hit, Donkey Kong, that was also a game programmed at Ikegami Tsushinki. This soon became a problem for Nintendo, when it decided to follow up on the sudden success with a sequel, Donkey Kong Jr., and realized that it didn't actually know how Donkey Kong worked. So Nintendo contracted some other people to reverse-engineer supposedly Nintendo's own game. And those people were either incompetent or just didn't care to an enviable degree, because they ignored and let Nintendo copy into its new cabinet's ROM the following message left in the Donkey Kong ROM, specifically for anyone trying to reverse-engineer the system. It said, in sort of English, Congratulations! If you analyze difficult this program, we would teach you. End quote. And this was followed by a phone number in Tokyo so that you could call Ikigami Tsushinki and apologize. So Donkey Kong Jr., Nintendo's first video arcade cabinet developed in-house, had a chunk of code from the original Donkey Kong in it, the code which under contract terms Nintendo did not own. Then Taito won a copyright infringement suit against some Space Invaders ripoffs, setting a precedent. In 1983, right as Nintendo offered its stock on the fancy Tokyo Stock Exchange for the first time, Ikigami Tsushinki sued. The timing was perfect, and they threw in the accusation that Nintendo had reverse-engineered the Donkey Kong circuit board even earlier to copy them and produce more cabinets to meet more demand. Again, Nintendo was supposed to place an order with Ikigami Tsushinki. Apparently this legal battle was resolved only in 1990. The code of Donkey Kong indeed belonged to Ikigami Tsushinki, but the company settled their differences. So let's leave Japan for a while. 
The second effect of the 1983 Apple vs. Franklin court ruling was that it reassured the entire commercial software industry that it was fine to release stuff without opening your source code to anyone. Compile it, pack it up, ship it, it's protected. As a result, software, including games, grew less friendly towards people who wanted to find out how it worked. And when BASIC turns obsolete, nobody is going to miss its exposed code either. And that's how the era of computer games that let you peek under the hood, mess around with numbers, learn new tricks, make a homegrown variant, would end in the 80s. As its replacement, we now have modding, where the program code is not open, maybe even encrypted, and the things users are allowed to change, if the developers don't encrypt those as well, are the graphics, the sound, the levels... Actually, it could be most of the game's data, but not the program. Of course, it can be hacked and reverse-engineered, but not many people have the time for that. The third consequence of the court's decision was... Hey, remember IBM? How it had this problem with all the PC clones? And some of them offered full compatibility? Well, the manufacturers of those clones had done the same thing as Franklin. They copied the BIOS. After Apple vs. Franklin, IBM lawyers didn't even need to build an elaborate legal argument. The precedent had been set, and they had a special weapon to drop on the copycats. It played out something like this. IBM would go, Wow, you guys! You've made a computer just like hours out of all the right parts! How do you manage? I mean, not everything is labeled on the circuit boards. And the guys would reply, Oh, we just used your technical reference book. The open hardware approach means it's okay. We've got all the parts in the shop down the street. Thanks a lot for the blueprints, by the way. To this IBM would say, You're welcome! Oh, sign here, please. Listen, how did you make it 100% compatible? You didn't copy our BIOS, did you? You have heard what happened to the poor old Franklin who went picking apples he didn't own, haven't you? The guys would get slightly nervous and answer, No, we wouldn't. It kind of happened by accident, you know. Our programmers were sitting there mashing in keys for a few weeks, and we tried it, and suddenly it's fully compatible. And that's when IBM would... Really? Just like that? You know, I believe you. But there's this silly problem, and I just learned about this yesterday. Apparently, whoever wrote our reference book, bless their heart, for some reason decided to put in a complete listing of our BIOS code. It's not like in BASIC or C, it's Intel 88 assembly language, but it is there in print. And if my bosses were to take you to court, and they're not as trusting as I am, then given your own admission of consulting the reference book we've got here in writing, I sure do hope you've got ironclad proof that while flipping the pages, you never open the ones with the code. Or, say, looked at the back cover. Because if you do not have it, friend, any instances of identical programming, the most basic operations included, will be presented as copyright infringing. And that's how the life of PC clone manufacturers went from nice and easy to very, very hard. IBM's life-giving open source turned out to be a poison chalice. For the few companies that chose to stay in the business afterwards, there were three ways to keep going. Pay IBM and keep paying it a royalty of every sale, essentially getting a license. Or replace the BIOS with a totally different one. Or follow the lead of one crafty outfit that managed both the release of fully compatible clone and not to give IBM an opening for a lawsuit. Enter Compaq. Compaq was founded in 1982 by three guys from Texas Instruments who felt that neither Texas nor Instruments were doing particularly well business-wise. 
After some thinking, they settled on the idea to clone the new computer industry darling, the 5150. Another new kind of hardware that was rising in popularity in the early 80s were portable computers. Not yet tablets, not even laptops, but luggable units the size of a suitcase and genuinely portable, as opposed to whatever the word meant in IBM speak. The downside of those systems was that most were not built like or compatible with anything else. So the soon-to-be founders of Compaq decided to combine the IBM PC and portability. The Compaq Portable was ready for its public announcement in less than a year. The hardware wasn't a problem. Creative engineering allowed all the components to be packed into a suitcase-sized box, a side of which served both as a detachable keyboard and a lid covering a CRT display. Getting the operating system was even easier, since Bill Gates had retained the rights to license his dirty operating system to everyone, and was making bank offering it to all the companies ripping off the PC. Those DOSes were not quite the same as the one IBM had got, but Microsoft made no secret of any particular differences, and looked the other way if a company corrected them. In fact, Compaq did everyone a solid here by licensing its modified, more compatible hack of DOS back to Microsoft. The one complication came from the stage between the hardware and the operating system, the BIOS. Compaq smelled some kind of possible issues or an outright trap with IBM's reference book from the very beginning, early in 82. The company hired lawyers, experts in intellectual property, copyrights, patents, trademarks. They looked at a legal lay of the land and suggested a method that would minimize the risk of a lawsuit. And what a method it is. It's got two names, either clean room design or the Chinese wall. Here's what they did. First, they got an engineer to read the forbidden tome of the BIOS code. From that point on, that guy was tainted, his name inscribed on a black monolith lost in a scorched desert, and he could never ever write a BIOS for a PC clone. Because if he did, his work could be painted as a copy of the original. And if he lied about not reading it, there was always a chance some evidence or testimony would surface. You know, maybe someone would say they had totally seen that guy browsing the reference book in his bathtub, and they got the pictures to prove it. But the engineer's noble sacrifice was not in vain. As he read and analyzed the original code, he documented how it worked without recreating what it looked like. He wrote a specification outlining what the BIOS should do in a precise but human language, never going into how a feature should be programmed exactly. This specification was then passed on to lawyers, who checked it and officially notarized it. All exchange of information during the procedure had to be tightly controlled and registered, creating an audit trail. The specification was then slipped under the door of the clean room, inhabited by a programmer who had never seen IBM's code. He'd sworn in a stack of red books to that effect, and that no one could ever present in court photos of him peeking into the reference manual at night under the blanket. This programmer had to re-implement the original BIOS, create something that worked alike. If it didn't work right, he had to be informed, again, in general terms and in notarized memos. Now, it was highly likely, maybe inevitable, that in his work the programmer would repeat some parts of the code of the original IBM BIOS. But this is where a difference between patents and copyrights comes in. If, say, you've been living under a rock and then invent a rock-lifting machine, but some guy was already issued a patent for a machine just like it last month, your invention is patent infringing. 
it doesn't matter if you didn't know, it doesn't matter if you didn't base your invention on his, that guy has called dibs on rocklifting, and patent law doesn't care about independent creation. Copyright law, on the other hand, the word copy is in the name for a reason. If you write a book on rocklifting after that other guy, and there are a few identical paragraphs, and the guy takes you to court for infringement, but you can demonstrate that you've been living under a rock the whole time and have never heard of his book, there is no infringement. Copyright law kinda shrugs at this and reasons that those identical parts were the best or the only way to express a particular idea, and neither of you two are that creative in the first place. Which is why, when IBM lawyers saw what Compaq had and how it got it, they threw their hands in the air and said, nope, we can't touch this. And it's probably the moment IBM started regretting lobbying against patents and software. Hoisted by its own petard. Meanwhile, Compaq was making money hand over fist, 100 million within a year, advertising 100% IBM compatibility, possibly lying since there were a few tiny differences in the operating system behavior, but they were hard to run into. Some of the companies IBM had dropped the legal hammer on saw this and made their own clean room biases. There weren't many of them, since the magical copyright-defeating process took both time and money. Compaq had paid a million dollars for its re-implementation. So things were not too terrible for IBM. Until 1984. In May 84, Phoenix Software Associates swooped in with the offer of a lifetime. For a mere $290,000, anyone who wanted could get a bundle of a BIOS, a DOS, and a basic interpreter, which, provided your hardware was close enough, would turn your computer into a 100% compatible IBM clone. Everything was legit. The latter two parts of the offer were licensed from Microsoft, the BIOS came from the clean room process. But to ensure a higher degree of protection from IBM, Phoenix handed the task of writing the program to a guy who had never ever worked with an Intel processor before. Not only had he not seen the code, he didn't even know what the instruction did and was learning on the job. This actually had side effects. They had to keep sending the dude memos for a few months to remind him that the processor had built-in memory, registers, and make him use them. But it all worked out in the end, and Phoenix, producing no computers itself, opened the gates for a stampede of other companies hungry for IBM's hard-earned market. We'll leave the rest of the story until the next season, as IBM is far from done being clowned on. Yet these shenanigans of the early 80s, based on the decisions made in the 70s and maybe the 60s, were vital in establishing the PC as a game platform, as it certainly wasn't one early on. If you bought the 5150 for games, you had too much money, were bad with money, and easily manipulated. However, the Chinese wall method does make a direct appearance in the history of games as well. It's kinda jumping pretty far ahead, but since we're talking about it anyway, might as well throw this story into the mix too. This story started in 88, when Sega released a new game console, the Sega Mega Drive, in Japan. In 89, it was unveiled in the United States as the Sega Genesis. Sega itself published games for it, naturally, but other companies could release their titles for it too, if they were approved by Sega, got a license from Sega, and received a special development kit from Sega. Unfortunately, Sega was dragging its feet with the approval process, because it hadn't planned for high demand, and the line of studios waiting for it grew long and restless. 
Getting in on a new platform in its early months has always been a big deal, since it's easier to be noticed before there are hundreds of other games available. A few companies decided to cut in line. That's how, in June 1990, in the run-up to the Consumer Electronics Show, Sega was approached by one slimy fellow. Known mostly by the name Trip Hawkins, and who knows by how many others, the guy represented and was the president of a supremely shady, cross to the other side of the street if you see it, company Electronic Arts. As it turns out, Electronic Arts had been interested in the Mega Drive for a while, since its Japanese release, but waited a little to see if Sega changed anything in the American version. It didn't. So EA somehow acquired a development kit for the console, the technical documentation, the software tools, and a special, more open variant of the hardware. The company put those in an isolated room only one guy was allowed to enter. He pulled the unit apart, reverse-engineered every little thing, wrote a specification covering the entire dev kit, then it all was passed through lawyers to a team that recreated the system from scratch. All perfectly legal. So in June 1990, Trip laid it on thick, saying that not only could Electronic Arts make totally functional games for the Genesis without Sega's approval, but that EA could pull a phoenix and offer its perfectly legal solution to every other company waiting in line for a license from Sega. Sega people were understandably furious, but there was literally nothing they could do. That's when Trip offered an olive branch. EA and Sega would make an official licensing deal, announce their friends for life at the upcoming show, and instead of airing Sega's trade secrets in the open, EA would uh, get to release however many games for the console it wanted. A pretty generous deal for Electronic Arts. Then again, for Sega, it was an offer it couldn't refuse. If any of you feel any pity for Sega in this situation, don't. After the forced deal with EA, it decided to make life more difficult for other companies that managed to reverse-engineer its cartridges and made unlicensed games. There were a few of them all over the world, and a big one in the United States was Accolade. At the Consumer Electronics Show the year after the Bad Trip experience, Sega unveiled a new version of the Genesis with a built-in trademark security system, preventing unofficial releases from working. Right in front of Accolade representatives, Sega people took an Accolade game cart, stuck it into the new console, and it did not work. Sega was asking for it. Accolade engineers were no fools. They found that all the so-called security system did was check whether or not a specific location in the ROM chip contained the word Sega. If it didn't, the game didn't load. If it did, the console flashed the caption, produced by or under license from Sega Enterprises Limited on the screen, and ran the game. Alright, they just put Sega at the required address and started shipping new cartridges. That's when Sega lawyers high-fived one another, cracked open the champagne, and rushed to file a suit against Accolade, frothy glasses in hand. They totally had it. See, patent law didn't apply. Copyright could be easily circumvented, though Sega did claim copyright to the word Sega stored in the ROM for good measure. But the real trap was in trademark law. That caption that introduced a game as licensed by Sega was creating a false impression and using Sega's trademark without a license. Can't have that. Accolade went, Really? Really, you're stooping this low? Putting Sega on the chip is a technical requirement we have to fulfill to make our software work. And Sega created that requirement. 
And this dumb under license from Sega card has been put in by Sega too, and it's triggered by a code Sega has added, and it happens whenever the console runs anything. What did we do? But Sega was able to show that it was technically possible to run a game on the Genesis without that card popping up by using some other secret it had hidden in the code. Accolade lost, but then it appealed and won because basically the whole thing was stupid. Then Sega appealed, but the court was so sick of both parties they were told to settle it between themselves. Outside. In the end, Accolade got a legit license from Sega. There was another major courtroom rumble in the late 80s involving Nintendo and Atari, but I'll get to it some other time. We've had enough legal matters to last us many, many episodes today. No, this episode hasn't been much about specific games, but I try to keep the law stuff simple and dramatic, like a game itself. There may be a few jurist listeners who had been tearing their hair out through the whole hour. Sorry, but it's important to be aware of these things happening in the background of the industry, as the legal and technically legal framework the industry relied on was forming alongside the arrival of new hardware and game concepts. And knowing about these events and how different the legal field was a few decades ago does help explain a few things. Some of them are small questions, like why was everyone presenting their video arcades at a jukebox trade show? Or why couldn't Atari get a loan? Or why was Steve Wozniak scared when some guys sent him some Apple code? Sometimes you get the answers to a big one, like the ever-popular how are these people allowed to take someone else's game, change the graphics and sell the obvious clone? Because IBM. Why do some old people call those things IBM PCs, even though they're made by everyone but IBM? Because again, IBM. And we'll go back to what we've learned today next time, too. You know, when I was drafting this episode first, putting down a few topics to cover, I was expecting to start with some juicy, dirty tales of organized crime, and then move them aside and switch to nice, clean, legal stuff. What I got instead was a nearly seamless transition from organized crime to organized law. Things that are legal because a corporation lobbied legislators into making the law say what was convenient for its business. Things that many people would say should not be legal, but are if you stick to the letter of the law and not common sense. Perfectly legal business deals where one side already has everything but for the final legitimizing signature on the paperwork, and the other side is graciously allowed to keep the pen. Situations when verifiably not knowing something counts for more than any experience with that something. Organized law is a fascinating beast. While I have covered the origins of quite a few wins in the legal climate surrounding games this time, There is one new concept I've sort of dropped into your lap without due introduction, and it's a major one. Sega was allowing other companies, third-party developers, to release titles on its console. That's not what we're used to seeing, and that's not how the second generation of consoles operated in 67-68. But to see the thunderous beginning of this practice, we do need to go back to the very end of the 70s next time, and back to Atari and watch its chickens finally come home to roost. And somehow, it involves the two would-be founders of Accolade, Alan Miller and Bob Whitehead. This has been Computer Game Evolution. Thank you for listening, thanks to LegoFan94 for covering the costs, and support the people who need it the most.